tonight we're going to continue looking at um, how we are to pray. That's where we've been for the past several weeks. Um, uh, in this Sermon on the Mount, we've really been talking about the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. And um, so, a couple weeks ago we left off with um, talking about the Kingdom of God. And so, um, tonight we're going to move past that and just kind of talk about how we're supposed to approach our Heavenly Father in prayer. And praying in such a way that um, is beneficial and, and effective. Um, I just kind of been thinking about this. I think prayer is probably one of the most weakest points in the church today. Um, I think it's something we know a lot about. I just think we struggle with uh, doing it and doing it correctly. If you, if you read um, books from people, from pastors, people who lived anywhere between 50 to 100, maybe 150 years ago, you'll notice some things about, about prayer that really sounds prophetic reading it today. There's a lot of concerns that older pastors and older theologians had about the condition of the church concerning prayer. Um, they wrote that their biggest fear was that prayer would, would kind of ease its way out of the church. I think that's interesting, don't you? I think it's interesting that a hundred years ago they were seeing um, the, the degrading and the degradation of prayer in the church. There's some people, if you get the urge to study and look about it, uh, there's a few people that you can look at that, that are they're considered contemporary theologians, kind of modern day theologians. Leonard Ravenhill is one, talks a lot about prayer. Uh, E.M. Bounds, anybody ever heard of E.M. Bounds? One of, the, one of the greatest writers I've ever read about on prayer. Um, Spurgeon said a lot about prayer, and all of them voiced the same fear, is that they feared that the church would try to thrive and exist without prayer. I think that's interesting. Because I think that's where we are today. I think we struggle with it. I think uh, there is a lack of prayer in, not just in church, like the church service, but in the church, in the body uh, of Christ. And I think it's a real problem. And it's not that we've just quit, right? We still pray, right? How many of you have prayed today? Hopefully all of us. Hopefully we'll pray some more today, right? It's not that we don't pray. We, we can set our watch to prayer a lot of times, right? It's not that we're not praying. I think the problem is we don't know how to pray. Or we don't know what to pray for. And that's what Jesus is trying to get at in this, in this uh, Lord's Prayer. James 5.16 says this, um, The effectual prayer of a righteous person avails much. You know what that means? You know, what does that word effectual mean? It's effective, right? It, it accomplishes something, right? So what does that mean? What does that tell us? If James talks about effectual prayer, then that means that there's got to be some prayers out there that are not effectual. There are prayers that don't get past the ceiling, so to speak. There are prayers that do not accomplish what we're after. How many of you have prayed those before? Both hands raised, right? I have prayed prayers that I know didn't get anywhere. And we'll talk about why that may be tonight. But the difference between the two is that effectual prayers are those that accomplish the purpose of God, right? Effectual prayer accomplishes the purpose of God. Another word for purpose is will, right? So that's what we're going to talk about tonight, is the will of God in prayer. What is it that we need to learn about God's will in prayer? Jesus says we're to pray like this. Pray that your 
kingdom come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let me ask you this evening. How many of you know what God's will is? That's kind of a million dollar question, isn't it? What in the world? What is God's will? How many of you ever prayed that? God, what is your will? Yeah, I have. I prayed that today. I'll pray it tomorrow because I think while we may understand parts of it, we don't fully understand it. And it's with this question that we see we cannot pray effectually unless we understand God's will. Why? Effectual prayer deals with praying according to God's will. And so if we're going to pray effectually, if our prayers are going to get past the ceiling, we've got to somehow be in tune with God's purposes. And we've got to pray according to those purposes. So that's what I want us to talk about. Four things I want us to kind of go through quickly this evening. First, I want us to talk about what is the will of God. We're going to spend a good amount of time talking about what the will of God is. And then secondly, we're going to talk about how it's brought about. How is the will of God brought forth in us, and how is it accomplished in us? Thirdly, how do we correctly pray according to God's will? And then fourthly, what do we do with it once we've prayed for it and we understand it? We've got to do something with God's will, right? So that's hopefully what I want to try to accomplish in these next few minutes. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, this sermon's going to be heavy. It's going to be heavy. Um, it's going to be hard. Because it's one of those sermons that kind of smacks you right between the eyes, man. You're going to come face to face really quickly with what we're not doing right. And I'll be honest with you, I don't like to preach that stuff. I don't like for us to hear what you're not doing right. But sometimes, man, that's just what the, God, what the Word of God does. Sometimes the Word of God shows you where you are, and it's not on mark. But here's the great thing about God. He doesn't leave you there. Amen. He shows us where we are, but then he also shows us where we need to be, but then he helps us get there. And so that's my prayer this evening for this uh, message is that we will see, man, maybe we're not praying according to God's will. Maybe we don't understand what God's will is. But my prayer is that as we study this text, we'll get to there and then we will effectively pray according to what he wants us to do. So why is this such an important thing? Why do you think Jesus specifically said, Pray for the will of God to be done. Why is the will of God such a big deal to God? Anybody want to take a shot at that? Because it glorifies Him. It glorifies Him, right? It also, and even on, on that note, to take that a little bit deeper, in glorifying Him, it sets Him as the appropriate King and ruler over all creation. So it puts Him in His rightful place to understand and to do His will. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 7. You're probably in Matthew 6 right now. Just flip over one more chapter. Real quickly, I want to read to you something that should, um, well, it should scare the soup out of you a little bit. Um, and if nothing else, it should cause you to think. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so what does that mean? There's some people that's not going to get there that think they are. But the one, here's the key, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
The will of God is the way by which we belong to Him. When we understand the will of God, we are confirming that we truly know who He is. And more importantly, that He knows who we are. Jesus says, listen, there's a lot of people that's going to throw my name around who ain't going to get there. The only ones that are going to make it into the kingdom are those who do the will of my Father. So I don't know about you, but that means that the will of God is pretty important. We need to know it, but we also need to do it. So, I believe eternity hangs in the balance of what Jesus is telling us to pray here. So let's, let's look at it. Matthew 6, uh, verse, uh, verse, I'll just read 9 and 10. Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So last time we were together a couple weeks ago, we spent some time talking about Jesus telling us to pray that the kingdom would come on earth just like it is in heaven. Now, what does that mean? Anybody was here a couple weeks ago, what does it mean to talk about the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Exactly. It's not, it's not uh, simplified into just a, a geographical location, right? Of course, heaven is the kingdom of God, but why is heaven the kingdom of God? Because God's there, right? The kingdom of God is wherever God is allowed to rule and reign, wherever he has authority and control over a place, right? So that's not limited to just heaven or even earth. Where is the kingdom of God today on earth? In his people. If we belong to Christ, we're a part of the kingdom, right? We are the kingdom of God. We are walking reflections of the rule and reign of God, right? And so when Jesus says, pray that the kingdom would come on this earth, he's saying, listen, that the kingdom cannot reign on earth if we're busy trying to build our own little kingdoms, right? If you say yes to Jesus, then you give your life to him, right? We've heard that before. You give your life to him. Well, what does that mean? It means he has everything. He has control of all of you, right? And you, you, you don't get to tell him no. You've heard me say this. If you call Jesus your master and tell him no, he's not your master, right? You don't tell your master no. And so for, for us to be a part of the kingdom, God has to have all of us, right? He has to have complete control of us. And the reason why I wanted to, to kind of remind us of that is because when we talk about God's will being done on earth, the extent to, of which God's will is done is dependent upon His reign in our life. If He doesn't have full reign, we're certainly not going to do His will. You should think about that. So these two things go together. So when God is saying, pray that the kingdom comes, pray that the will is done, you can't say, I'm going to build my own kingdom, but I'm going to do what you want me to do, right? In order to fulfill the will of God, we've got to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so he has to have all authority and control over us. So the question is really simple. Man, is he ruling and reigning in your life today? Does he have all of you? What area of your life is he off limits? Or is it off limits to him, rather? Is there a part of your heart that you say, hey, you can't go there? And he doesn't have full reign in your life. So let's talk about what the will of God is. The, the definition of the will of God is, is pretty simple. It's not difficult. We know, um, we know what a last will and testament is, right? What is that? What's a last will and testament? Your wishes carried out. Say it again? Your wishes 
your wishes carried out, right? It's a document that says, here's what I want to happen with my stuff, with me when I'm gone, right? I want to be buried, cremated, whatever, right? It's, it's what you want to happen with what you're in control of, right? That's what a will is. And so when we talk about a will, it's what we want to happen. So the will of God is what Jesus is referring to here. And so when we talk about the will of God, we're talking about what God wants to happen with what he owns, with his creation. But, but that's kind of just a surface definition. So when we hear about God's will, that's what he's referring to, his creation and what he wants done with it. If someone asks you, what's God's will? You say, it's what God desires. It's what he wants to happen with what is his. Another word that we just interchanged it earlier is his purpose. Mm-hmm. Right? So when we talk about what God purposes, it's what he wills. Okay? The explanation to that, though, goes a lot deeper. And I just kind of want to give us a basic overview of the different aspects of the will of God this evening. Um, and we don't have time to get deep into this, but I just kind of want to give you a surface, just, just tip of the iceberg of what we talk about when we're referring to the will of God. Let me, let me give you this to think about. Because God is absolutely sovereign, we, we, we've established that, right? God is sovereign. That means he is in control over all things. There's nothing inside and outside of time that happens that God is surprised by, right? That's what sovereignty means. So because God is absolutely sovereign, his will should uh, be absolute, right? And totally accomplished all the time. By definition, if God is sovereign and everything's in his control and he owns everything, then he should be able to do with his creation what he wants, right? And everything in creation should work out that way, right? By definition, that should happen. But here's the thing. We don't see that in Scripture. Now, I want you to put yourself in that position. If you were completely sovereign and in control over something, whatever you wanted to happen in that would happen, right? For example, if I was God and I was sovereign and I, <laughs> I didn't like rain, right? Would I ever let it rain? No. Would you ever let it rain? The things that you don't like, you wouldn't allow, right? Why? Because you're in control of it. You can do that. It's a good thing I'm not God, though, right? Because we'd all starve to death and thirst to death because I don't like rain. So when we look at the sovereignty of things, our mind immediately goes to, well, if he's in control over it, he should do whatever, whatever he wants to with it. But that does not happen in Scripture. For example, when you look at uh, 2 Peter 3, we'll, we'll do that one. 2 Peter 3, 9, listen to what it says. God is not willing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. God is not willing that any should perish, but that everybody should reach repentance. Well, God's sovereign. God is absolutely in control of all things. So in our minds, we go, well, then fine, nobody will perish. But what's the reality? People go into hell every day. So what's the, what's the problem here? If God is sovereign and God says, I'm not willing that any should perish, then this tells us two things, one of two things. Either God is not absolutely sovereign or his will has varying degrees. Um, In other words, we can say that God is so sovereign that he is even in control about how his will is carried out. He's even in control about how much sovereignty he exercises 
in his creation. So for um, lack of time tonight, I would ask that you trust me and just agree with me that the second part is true. We're not going to debate whether or not God is truly sovereign. Okay, He is. So the thing we need to focus on is then how in the world does he control his sovereignty and how does these varying degrees of his will work? Let's talk about them very quickly. When you study this topic, most scholars will say that, that God's will is broken up into at least two degrees, maybe three. So, um, for example, either he's completely sovereign and chooses not to exercise his will, uh, or he's limited in his wisdom and his sovereignty and is dependent upon our circumstances and how we act, or he controls all of that. I, I believe Scripture shows us two main aspects of God's will, okay? And, and I really don't want to get too academic, but I just want you to hold on with me for a couple minutes to explain this because it will really help us as we try to pray God's will, okay? Two aspects of God's will. First, there is God's permissive will. There's what's known as God's permissive will. And then, on the other side, is God's directive will. So we have God's permissive will and God's directive will will. Uh, another way of understanding these aspects will say there's, there's God's will of desire, what he desires, and then there's God's will of purpose. All right? What do you think the difference in purpose and desire is? Anybody know? Good. We're going to learn something then. Go with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. This is a passage that uh, clearly, clearly shows God's directive will uh, at work. Isaiah 14, 24 through 27. Listen to what he says. This is um, uh, talking about uh, Assyria. Okay, <clears throat> The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. Pretty definitive statement, right? I've planned it, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that I purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Pretty definitive language in that passage, right? Listen to what he says. God is directing the affairs of the nation of Assyria. And he's saying, here's what I purposed, and here's what I've wanted for them to happen, and it's going to happen, right? Look at what he says. He says, the Lord of hosts has purposed it. Who will annul it? Who's going to come along behind God and go, no, not going to go that route? Nobody. God said it. It's going to happen. I purposed it, I willed it, and so it will take place. Go to Luke chapter 22 now. Flip on over to Luke. Let me show you another example of God's directive will. This is a very popular passage. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. If you're not there yet, you'll, you'll catch on. Luke 22, verse 39 through 44. And he, meaning Jesus, came out and went as his custom to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. 
And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Here we go. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So what's happening here? What's, what's getting ready to happen with Jesus? He's getting ready to the cross, and he knows it. And so what does he do? He goes to the garden, and he drops and hits his knees, and what does he begin to pray? God, I don't want to do this. If there's any way, if there's any other way out there that you can save mankind without me having to go to the cross, let's do that. That's what he's saying. But how's he in the prayer? Not my will, but yours be done. And the result of that prayer was what? An angel came and what? Strengthened him. What do you think that means? You know what that means when the angel came? The angel came and told him, this is what's going to happen. You're going to the cross. God will get you through. And so what we see in this is that even when the Son of God is praying, Lord, please change your mind. God says, I'm not going to do it. That's his directive will. I have willed it. It is my purpose for you, Jesus, and you will do it. He said that to his own son. Isaiah 53.10 says, it was the will of God to crush him. That was what he purposed for him. The cross happened exactly as God wanted it. And it accomplished exactly what, it, what God wanted it to accomplish. And nothing, not even the pleading of his own son, would change that will. So, how many of you say that's safe, safe to say that there are, are purposes of God that are pretty concrete? The cross is one of them, right? This is my will for my creation, and it's going to happen. If, if anybody could change his mind, his son could, right? Yet he didn't. So, so God's directive will is an overall plan and purpose for his creation. A way of looking at his directive will is it's the big picture. It's what he is working together that we'll look back on in eternity and go, yeah, I get it now. But right now, we don't really see it. That is his directive will. It serves a purpose that goes far beyond our comprehension. God wills things like this for eternal reasons. Reasons that sometimes our mind just can't comprehend, right? Um, but we do have a small understanding of why he wills things a certain way. It's for his glory. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. So do you understand what directive will means? Mm -hmm. It's concrete. He said it. We're going to do it. And that's it, right? So let's talk about permissive will or God's will of desire. I have an illustration to kind of help us with this. Um, how many of you dreamed about being something specific when you were a kid? Like you want to be a doctor or a police officer? Well, good. How many of you are actually doing that right now? Good for you. You want to be a preacher growing up? I hear you, Randy. I was in that little trailer we grew up in, man, up back in the bedroom and had a Bible look, look, man, I was visualizing myself preaching the word. Good for you. That's the truth right there. I, I, I wanted to be anything but a preacher. <laughs> I'm not. I was practicing back here in that little bedroom 
I had a uh, I had a <laughs> I had a freshman professor who uh, he was a psychology professor who said sixty percent of you will graduate with a degree that you'll never use. Man, that made me feel good every time I wrote that check to Liberty University. Like, man, I'm not gonna use it. And I was close, man. I was almost a psychology major. I was right there at it, and God changed my changed my changed my heart, changed my life, and became a preacher. But 60% of us will graduate with a degree that we'll never use. It's over half of us. And so we have this, this dream, this plan of what we want to do and what we want to be. And so we start out on this journey, and it doesn't go the way we think it's going to go, right? And so what do you have to do? What do you have to do? You have to adapt, right? You have to <coughs> squeeze this way. The road's not always straight, man. It takes loops, and it turns, and switchbacks and but you know what ultimately all the time and but ultimately your desire is to get to this place because look you want to be a, a police officer when you're a kid because you think that's something that you want to do it makes you happy you're content you feel like you're serving a purpose ultimately that's where we'll end up but the way we get there very rarely looks the way we think it's going to right and this is the way God's permissive will looks right you, you can't plot it out exactly the way it's going to happen but it narrows down to these personal desires that you have. And so that not everything that happens in your life is a personal desire. But somehow you fit it in and you get to where you're going. Right? Um, I got some examples for that, but for time's sake, we'll go on to just the scripture. Two examples from scripture that show God's permissive will. One we just talked about, 2 Peter 3 9. What does it say? God is not willing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. We know, hopefully, and we are confident to, and believe that God's desire for His creation is that people will get saved. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Hopefully we know that, right? It's a very unhealthy theology if you believe that God wants people to go to hell. He does not. And so when we look at this, we say, okay, you don't want people to go to hell, then why do they? Why do you allow that to happen if that's not what you desire? Uh, the argument is made, and I think it's got some truth to it, but I don't think it's a full argument, that the reason why that happens is because we have free will. Right? We've heard that argument. Right? We have free will to choose whether or not we want to do it. And so I think that that's not an accurate or a, a full explanation of what's going on here in this text. Um, let me give you the second example, and we'll come back to the explanation. So God doesn't desire that any would perish, but he allows some to perish. That's what that verse is saying. Matthew 23, 37. You don't have to turn there, but here's what, what's happening. Jesus goes into Jerusalem, and he's weeping. And what does he say? Here's what he says. How often I would have gathered my children together as a hen gathers her chicks. But what? You would not. So what's Jesus saying? He's expressing a desire. Here's what I want to do with my people in Jerusalem. I want to protect you. I want to gather you up. I want you to be mine. I want you to see the safety and protection that I provide for you. But you just won't do it. You would not. And so the question is, why does God exercise a permissive will and not just a directive will all the time? Well, here's what I think. The surface answer is for the sake of His glory. And here's, here's what that means. God uses the sin and mistakes of our lives 
to make His name great and bring Him glory. Now, don't misunderstand me. God does not will you to sin. God is not the author of sin. So God's not up in heaven going, man, I really hope they blow it. So I can just, it's not how God works. But God's not surprised by our sin. Here's the way we got to look at that. Without his involvement in our life, we're going to sin, right? How many of you can get up tomorrow and think that you can live a life without sin, without Jesus? Smart answer. Nobody can. Left to our own devices, we will sin, right? We will fall victim to sin. And so he knows that's going to happen. And for whatever reason, he lets that happen. He lets us fall. He lets us sin. But why? So that he will ultimately receive glory from his involvement in that. here's, Here's how I know that. Genesis. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, right? He's mistreated. He's taken down into Egypt. What does God do with Joseph in Egypt? What does he do? He sets him up over the whole nation of Egypt. He works for Potiphar, and he's doing his job well. Then he gets in trouble, and and he's thrown back in prison. And a couple years later, he's set up in this high place again. And then something happens, a famine happens, right? And God allows Israel to go down with his sons to buy food. And they find out that Joseph's not dead. He's where? He's in charge of the food that they're trying to get. And you remember what Joseph said to them? When they were begging for mercy, because they just knew, man, they were going to get it. What does he say? You remember what he does? The Bible says he embraced them. And he said, oh, brothers, what you meant for evil, what? God used for good. That's a picture of God's permissive will. God allowed Joseph to go that journey of, of slavery and rising to success, but still being separated from his family, back into prison and then rising again, all that he in this one moment could show his brothers how God took their evil desires and used it, not only for his good, but for the the good of all of Israel. But it doesn't just stop with the story of Joseph, right? Think about what happened. If, If Joseph would have never been sold into slavery, then Israel would have never went down to Egypt. If Israel would have never went down to Egypt, they wouldn't have populated Egypt. If they wouldn't have populated Egypt, they wouldn't have been slaves of the Egyptians for 400 years. If they wouldn't have been the slaves of the Egyptians, God would have never rescued them and shown his glory and power to Pharaoh and made a name for himself around the world. We wouldn't read it in the Bible and we wouldn't worship because of it. See, the effects of of Joseph's or God's permissible will in allowing Joseph to go through that still has effects on us today. We read that story and we go, wow, how great is God that he did that. God's glory is shown as he allows sin to rule sometimes in our life and as we struggle with it. So let this be an encouragement. In the moments in your life where it looks like God is not at work, he is. He is. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good for those that love him and are called according to his what? Purpose. What's another word for purpose? His will. Everything God does in your life 
is working it together for his will to be accomplished in your life. That sin that you're wrestling with right now is for his glory and ultimately for your good if you allow it to point you to him. Nothing's a waste. Nothing is a waste. So that's the basic understanding of God's will. So he has a directive will that he does and he moves creation and you know, there was a story in Joshua where the sun stood still, right? He actually, I mean, nobody else can do that. And he made the sun stand still. I mean, there are parts of his will that he does and it happens and you can't do anything about it. But then there's parts that he works within our sin and our human nature to bring about his glory. So how does that apply to what Jesus said in Matthew 16? Pray like this. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the next question we need to ask is, how is God's will done in heaven? How, how, how is God's will accomplished in heaven? Who's in heaven with God? Who does his bidding? The church and his angels. His angels, right? His angels. They're, they're his messengers. They get to work. They do, do uh, work for him. Here, here's a, little, a good little Bible study you should probably try one day this week or maybe this month. I want you to go, and, and I want you to... And, the internet's amazing. It makes this really easy. I want you to do a search for how many times the Bible speaks of angels doing the will of God. Several. And I want you to notice how they do it. How do they do His will? How do they go about accomplishing His will? Let me give you a few just descriptive words that the Bible uses. One is eagerly. They eagerly accomplish His will. They completely accomplish his will they swiftly carry out his commands right they joyfully do his bidding they willfully go about his work so what we see is that his will for the angels in heaven is a priority they exist and you could say this the angels exist to accomplish the will of god that's why they that's why they live that's why they're there Unless we go back to the permissible will of God, Satan was what at one time? An angel. angel. Do you know that Satan is fulfilling the will of God right now as Satan? Do you know that? Because one day, one day all is going to be made right. And God's going to get glory when he defeats Satan. Man, doesn't it make Satan mad? We talked about that a couple weeks ago, right? Doesn't it make Satan mad that he cannot escape the power of God? Even as he's destroying and destructing and all of creation, he cannot go outside the bounds of God to do those things. God's still in control, even over the things that Satan does right now. So we know that the kingdom work and the will of God is a priority for the angels in heaven. So just like the kingdom of God, the will of God in heaven is accomplished quickly, correctly, and thoroughly. And so Jesus says, I want you to pray that the same thing happens here on earth, just like it happens in heaven. There's no question about who's in charge in heaven, right? God has full reign up there. Therefore, for the church and for the believers, there shouldn't be a question about who's in charge here. The will of God is carried out completely and eagerly in heaven. No questions asked. Jesus is saying the same should be done here. This is what you're to pray for. Pray that the will of my Father is carried out just as fully and eagerly and joyfully and completely here as it is up there. Which brings us to another question. We know the angels do the Lord's will in heaven, 
Who is he looking to in order to accomplish his will on earth? His church. The body of Christ. We are called to not only live as kingdom people on this side of eternity, but also do his will this side of eternity. Just like we are extensions of his kingdom as he rules and reigns, we are agents of his will as we live on this earth. So, now we begin to see, uh, what we begin to see is that praying for his will to be done means that there is a request, right? We're asking God for his will to be done, but that request leads us to an action that must be taken uh, part of on our, on our part, right? We, we, not only do we ask for his will to be done, but we are the ones responsible for carrying that out once we realize what it is, right? So this is not just a prayer that we are stay hold up in our closet praying and say, God, may your will be done, may your will be done, may your will be done, and then we never do anything. How many of you have ever done that? John MacArthur says that's actually an act of rebellion. It's kind of deep, but he says, you know, the reason we do that is because we don't really believe that God can accomplish his will. And so we, that's how we, we pray things. It's like a safety net for us. Right? When we pray, it's, it, we pray, you know, God, I really wish you'd do this. But in our hearts, we really don't believe you will, so we say, if it be your will. That way, if it doesn't happen, we'll say, well, it just wasn't God's will. It's a lack of faith. It's rebellion. And so when we pray, your will be done, man, there's got to be some backing behind it. It's got to be prayed in faith and a faith that's willing to put feet to what you've just prayed, right? And so that's what Jesus is telling us. You, you pray your will be done, and he's looking to us to do that. Now, here's, here's where we begin to kind of lose grasp of this. Here's where the message gets kind of hard. How do we carry out the will of God? How do you carry that out? What's the first thing you got to have before you carry it out? You've got to know what it is, right? You've got to know the will of God before you do it, right? God wouldn't expect us to do something we don't know anything about. So by knowing the will of God, here, here's the thing. We can carry out the will of God, but here's the next question. How do we know what the will of God is? That was the question we started off with, right? How do we know what God's will is? Are we supposed to just kind of shake a magic eight ball or... Read the tarot cards or what? You know? What is it? The word. The word. I cannot stress to you how important this next part of this message is. The word of God shows us the will of God. When you have somebody that says, man, I, I just don't know what God's will is. You know what they're really saying? I don't know what God's word says. And I know that that sounds like an oversimplification. Because there's a lot of things that you've got to put together to distinguish what God's will is. But it boils down to this. I wish I knew what God's will was. Well, then what does this word say? If we know the word of God, we can discern the will of God. The Bible is God's story of both his directive and permissive will at work at the same time throughout creation throughout all of history. He's writing a story, and there are passages that specifically say, this is God's will for you. Amen. Right? There are passages that specifically say, this is the will of God that you... Da, 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 da. Another, another good Bible study you should do, if you're looking for one, is go through and see how many times the Word of God says specifically, this is God's will for you. 
Many of us, we hide behind. I don't know what God's will is. Have you read his word? What does his word say? God's word is his written revelation to us concerning his will. You know why God spoke to the prophets in the Old Testament? Because his, he communicated his will because his word wasn't written. We have his written word. We have the revelation of God. And so there's no excuse for, for us not to know what his will is. So, um, when we pray for God's will to be done, we are praying that his word would be fully obeyed in his people. That's what we're praying. So when we pray, man, your will be done, what we're saying is, God, show us from your word what you want us to do and then help us do it. That's what it is. Put action to what we are praying for. So <clears throat> the prayer for God's will to be done isn't so much a prayer to know the will of God. Um, that's found in the word, right? We are praying that his will would take precedence in our lives over our own will. Let me say that again. So because we know that God's will is found in his word, and we pray as Christians, your will be done. We're not saying, God, show me what your will is, because we just need to read the word. What we're essentially saying is, God, I want you to make your will more of a priority than my own. That's what Jesus is getting at. Pray that, man, what you want for me supersedes what I want for myself. Now, this goes back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago with the kingdom. We can't be a part of God's kingdom while we're building our own little kingdom, right? I can't be on the throne of my life and have Jesus on the throne too. And so what this is an issue of and what Jesus is really driving us to is surrender. Letting go of what we think is best to pick up what God says is truly best. And I'm telling you, it gets hard here. It gets hard for us. We, we, we may hear that the way we do the will of God is to obey the word, and we, we probably get overwhelmed with that because, you know, we go, man, that's 66 books, man. I, I don't know all this, right? How many of you just feel overwhelmed when you hear, if you want to do the will of God, just obey the word of God? And you go, well, golly, what's the word of God say, right? And we all do that, right? We all get a little overwhelmed with this. But, you know, here's, here's kind of been my experience. Here's what I've noticed, not just in the life of the church, but in my, in my own life. It's not so much that we get overwhelmed with not knowing the Word of God well enough. We may lean on that excuse. We may lean on that excuse of just, I just don't understand it, or I just I don't have time to study it like I should. Therefore, I'm just left to figure out God's will on my own, or I'm just not going to do God's will and go do my own because I just can't figure it out. Here's what that, here's what that says to me. It says, first of all, that man, it's not important. That you you don't truly desire to know what God wants for you, because it's it's like, I mean, it's like if this were a plate of food and you were starving to death, and I laid this in front of you, you would eat it. I mean, you would, no questions asked, because you're hungry. But what I found is, in our culture today, many of us just aren't hungry. Amen. And when we get in our our little spiritual circles where we bring up these spiritual conversations, we, we can begin to say, well, yeah, man, I'd really, really love to do God's will. Maybe the mission field's calling, you know? But then when we get back to our own little world, we're not that hungry. We don't really care that much about his will, you know? And we, we begin to even rationalize sometimes. I mean, you know what? If he wanted me to do his will, he'd drop it out of the sky, right? 
He'd write it on my forehead. If he really wanted me to do it that much, he would do that. And he's going, plate's right in front of you. All you got to do is eat. Man, we, we get caught up in that. God, if you really want me to do this, you'll, you'll make it impossible for me to miss it. I've prayed that. God, if you really want me to do this, you will make it so impossible for me to miss it. And then God's probably after just shaking his head, man. The answer is right here. Find it. Do it. And folks, there's great danger in taking that mentality because Jesus said, listen, the only people that make it into the kingdom are what? Those who do the will of my Father. You got to do it. In order to do it, you got to know it. Right? And in order to know it, you got to want to get to know it. And so folks, don't play around with this and don't... Say, well, it's not that big of a deal. If God really wanted me to do his will, he would, he'd make me do it. No, he won't. No, he won't. And your eternity is hanging in the balance of that. Do you understand now why we at Man and First Baptist Church thought it was necessary for the whole church to go through a 31-week study of the Bible? You, you wonder why we do that? Because we understand how important God's word is is we understand that anything worth doing that has any eternal significance is found in this i mean we could have done a whole lot of other cool series with a whole lot of cool things and lights and all that good stuff but man we really said man god's word is what our people need and so we thought it was so important that we said we're going to go through it 31 weeks because people's eternity hinges upon it Go with me to um, Romans chapter 12 with me. We'll, we'll end with this this evening. Here's what I found. <clears throat> we can say, I don't know God's word and I don't have time to study it. But you know what I found out in Christian culture, especially in America, we are so exposed to it that we know more than we think we know. So the problem is not so much as in understanding the entire word of God to figure out the whole will of God. The issue is just us doing what we know. I don't have to be able to discern and, and diagram the whole book of 3 John to know that I'm supposed to love my neighbor. That's the will of God, right? I know that I'm supposed to love. And you don't have to be a Christian very long to know that that's the, that's the central tenet of Christianity. But we go, well, I don't know the whole thing, so I'm not going to do any of it. It's a cop-out, right? We know more of the word than we know, than we think we do, or we give ourselves credit. The key is we don't want to obey what we know. And therein, listen to me, therein lies the root of the whole problem. It's our, our lack of desire to obey. And what is that? What's at the heart of that? Rebellion. Sin. That's, that's where the problem lies. There's the root. And you know what? It extends all the way out to what Jesus is talking about. What's Jesus talking about in this passage of Matthew 6? Prayer. Mm-hmm. You want to know why your prayers aren't reaching this, going past the ceiling? Man, have you checked this out? Could it be that the root of your problem from struggling about everything from knowing about God's will to ineffectual prayer is the fact that you aren't willing to obey what you already know about God and His Word? Rebellion. 
Romans chapter 12. Here's the secret to being set on the right course and praying and doing the will of God. Paul tells us exactly how we break free from that. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, here it is, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Folks, please don't miss this. How does the will of God get done through us on earth? Right here, two things. We've got to die to ourselves, and then we've got to be transformed in our minds. Paul, Paul says this, notice this. The first thing he says, 